In many ways, President Donald Trump owes his success to tabloid journalism. John Cassidy writes in The New Yorker that during the 1980s, when he was an up-and-comer on the New York real estate scene, Trump was constantly planting puff stories about himself in the city's tabloids. During the 1990s, Trump resurrected his career by persuading the banks not to abandon him and eventually by becoming a star on reality television, itself a bastardized form of tabloid journalism. Perhaps no tabloid has been more helpful to Trump than the National Enquirer. We learned last year that the paper purchased and then killed multiple stories that were unflattering to Trump as he campaigned for president. And now we have allegations that the Enquirer sought to blackmail one of Trump's chief rivals, at least in Trump's eyes, Amazon CEO and owner of The Washington Post, Jeff Bezos. We know this because Bezos himself posted details last week about what he called an extortion and blackmail attempt by the Inquirer. How did a celebrity magazine get into the rough and tumble world of extortion? And why does the president of the United States keep appearing or not appearing in its headlines? This is Radio Atlantic. With me now is Jeffrey Tubin, staff writer for The New Yorker and chief legal analyst for CNN. What a pleasure. Jeff, it's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, Alex. So two years ago, you presciently (laughs) profiled AMI CEO David Pecker, a name we now have seen in the headlines quite a bit in recent weeks. His company was under scrutiny for a pattern of suppressing negative stories about President Trump. For people who don't know the very interesting history of the National Enquirer, it wasn't always a tabloid rag that you pick up at Walmart while you're waiting in the checkout line, right? It, it start it, the the origins of it are are sort of more unusual. Can you tell us a little bit about how it first began? Well, it, it began early in the 20th century, and uh, it was actually a fairly serious. Um, Magazine, you know, uh, I'll, in the in the same time period where Time Magazine started, the Time Life business began, but it really began to change uh, after World War II, and this really extraordinary character named Generoso Pope took it over, and it it began it, it turned into um, at least a version of the National Enquirer uh, that that we know today. That's when we start getting the the blood and gore photography, the sen- the kind of like car crash you can't look away from, um, right? Journalism, and, and, but but it's but it's interesting. I mean, even within the sort of seedy supermarket tabloid uh, world, it has gone through several iterations. Is that it, it started as you point out in in the Pope era with the really grotesque, the horrible car accidents, the deformed babies, the, the, but, but, you know, Pope had the brilliant idea of starting to sell it in supermarkets and supermarkets wouldn't put blood and gore on its checkout lines. So in the fifties and sixties, it evolved into the celebrity gossip, um, magazine that more or less it remains. Uh, but but the blood and gore uh, were gone. Interestingly, 
Um, the, the, a lot of that went to a crazy publication called the Weekly World News, mm-hmm. uh, which still barely exists, or actually it doesn't exist at all anymore, but was invented because they still had these black and white presses that they needed to use for something. So they would just sort of make up crazy news, call it the Weekly World News, and that, um, you know, in, in the glory days, sold hundreds of thousands of copies a week as well. Uh, to be a reporter on the weekly world news, I can only imagine those editorial meetings. Yeah. Now, we should note that, the, the you know, the Inquirer, as much as it is dismissed as kind of a tabloid rag, does have a history of breaking some actual real political news that had uh, um, implications for national politics. In 1987, the Inquirer, fam- the Inquirer famously published that photograph of Gary Hart and Donna Rice on the monkey business boat, which was the end of Hart's presidential bid. And then two decades later, the National Enquirer was first on the story that John Edwards had fathered a child out of wedlock during his presidential race. I wonder, Jeff, in your research um, for this story, did you find any instances of the Inquirer um, – taking a gimlet eye to Republican candidates and Republican politics, or has it always been sort of a right-wing leaning populist mag? I I would not describe it as intensely political in uh, particularly, uh, you know, up in, uh, I mean, even even the uh, Hart and um, uh, Edward Scoops, I don't think were particularly motivated by you know, screwing Democrats. I think they were motivated because they were great scoops. And 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 I don't, uh, it was really only when David Pecker uh, took over and really even during the Trump campaign, you know, very recently, that the, the inquirer became explicitly political. Um, and, you know, for example, 2016 was the first time the Inquirer ever endorsed a candidate for president. Mm-hmm. You know, that, I think that candidate, before, of course, was Donald w- Trump. Was Trump, right. But before <laughs> Trump, um, who, as, as I'm sure we'll discuss, you know, has, is a long-term friend of Pecker's, there was not a heavy-duty political orientation to uh, the Inquirer. It was much more gossip-driven and driven, above all, by um, n- newsstand sales, you know, whose face on the on the cover would sell would sell magazines. That is really what what, what drove it. Um, and even to a certain extent, in, in the Pecker Trump era, that that's what drove it, at least during the campaign. But but that was more. There was not not a heavy duty political orientation through most of the most of the uh, history of the inquiry. So the orientation is more scandal than partisan, right? I mean, you know, one of the fascinating things I learned in in reporting this story, and Pecker and his colleagues gave me tremendous access, is is they have a very scientific way of proving you know what sells and what doesn't, even what words sell and what words don't, you know. Uh, um, uh, Je- Jennifer, uh, oh God, I'm blanking. Uh, uh, the, Jennifer the one Flowers? From Friends. Uh, no, uh, Je- from Friends. Oh, Jennifer uh, Aniston, Jeff. Jennifer Aniston. Come Jennifer on. Aniston sells. <laughs> Jennifer Lopez does not sell. Um, you know, words you often see on the cover of the uh, Inquirer, tragic last days, that sells. That is what mostly drives the Inquirer more than politics. And at least during... The period of 2015-2016, Trump sold. And it, yes, there was a friendship with Pecker, 
But the fact that Trump sold was also a major factor. And that's not entirely surprising when you think about the Inquirer's audience, which is largely lower middle class. It, it sells uh, most of all in Walmart. Um, and, you know, the great swash, swaths of central Pennsylvania, central Ohio, central Wisconsin that, that won Trump the election, that was prime inquirer territory. Well, yeah. And it, it, so we'll get to that in a second, the sort of chicken or the egg scenario. Right. Right. Does Trump just happen to move a lot of national inquirers or was there a sort of benefit uh, to giving your friend favorable press. Let's talk a little bit about Dave Pecker, who becomes the head, who the steward of the National Enquirer. He is a fascinating character. He's not a journalist, but he is, in a way, a kind of throwback to a certain kind of New York City media mogul, isn't he, Jeff? He, he has these uh, kind of old school characteristics. He, he is. I mean, you know, the, the, most of the, the news media, I mean, you were You've worked with MSNBC. I work at CNN. You know, they're corporations. They're owned by, you know, shareholders and sort of CEOs who are very bottom line driven and business school graduates. Um, Pecker is a throwback to when uh, newspapers and magazines were owned by individual people and reflected the personalities of the, you know, like the, the Henry Luces, the... Uh, um, the, the, and, and Pecker, you know, has brought this, you know, slightly down market swashbuckling mentality to a series of magazines over the years. Um, it, it, you know, it, and before Trump was never known as a particularly political person, um, but the, the, everything changed with Trump. And he seems to be very much in the thrall of Donald Trump. Trump's sort of brand of New York success, the gilded ceilings and the, the supermodels on each arm is very, it seems like it intoxicated Dave Pecker in terms of what a definition of success should look like. Well, it certainly did. Um, and and um, there was a long relationship there, in part because Donald Trump was a familiar figure in the Inquirer, and he used to give Pecker and company tips about things to cover. But there was a business relationship between them, too. When you checked into a, uh, um, a Trump hotel for many years, uh, and this is true for several different uh, hotel chains, you got a Trump magazine that was uh, produced by American Media, which is Pecker's company, the parent company of the Inquirer. So, uh, you know, he, he did this, uh, what's called custom publishing, uh, which, you know, he, he did a magazine for Trump's hotels. And, and that built a relationship. You know, the, the Inquirer was based for many years uh, very close to Palm Beach. And, um, and he also acquired the star and now he's acquired all, he essentially now has a monopoly on the shrinking universe of supermarket tabloids. But, you know, he, he was, uh, I believe he was a member of Mar-a-Lago. He was certainly there a lot. And, and there was definitely a social relationship. And as you point out, um, Pecker in, in a very open way looked up to Trump as the kind of model of success he would have liked to have had. Fascinating. So we see that admiration 
sort of made public in in 2016. You talked about the fact that the Inquirer endorsed Trump the first time the paper ever endorses a political candidate. Um, They endorsed him for president in 2016. But in addition to that move, there are a number of other ones that indirectly help the Trump campaign. The Inquirer is ruthless in terms of trashing President Trump's rivals, then-candidate Trump's rivals, they were the ones that linked Ted Cruz's father to the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which we heard about on the campaign trail from Trump himself. And they were breathtakingly tough on Hillary Clinton and her so-called health issues. I remember um, you point this out in your in your piece. On Election Eve, the Inquirer offered a special nine-page investigation under the headline, Hillary, Corrupt, Racist, Criminal. With friend with with journalists like these, I mean, it was it it, it was well, and, fairly and, stunning. The the well, and and you you cite twenty sixteen. This really started in twenty fifteen. Um, you know, because <laughs> as I needn't tell you, our political our, our presidential yes. campaigns don't <laughs> begin in the year of uh, the election. Um, throughout the campaign 20, 20, 2015 and twenty sixteen. Uh, the 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 magazine was relentlessly cheerleading for Trump and trashing his rivals. As, you know, as you point out, uh, Ted Cruz during the primaries, and then just outrageous uh, stuff uh, about Hillary. And you know, without I, I mean, I, I don't want to sound too much uh, like a journalistic scold, but you know, we can't have this conversation without saying that they were lies about Hillary Clinton and, and, and distortions and terrible, terrible, unfair journalism. And, you know, it's easy to roll your eyes about the Inquirer. And it is true that the circulation of the Inquirer, you know, which was in, you know, three or four million in the 60s is now in the range of 300,000. Um, so it's dramatically, dramatically smaller, though the price has increased so that the revenue is not as different as it was. But, you know, millions of people see the cover of the Inquirer mm-hmm. every, every week. And so, so you know, I, I, when I wrote my New Yorker piece, you know, obviously I had some fun with the Inquirer and, and you know, you, you can't help but, you know, you know, get a sort of perverse kick out of how, to, how crazy it is. But you also need to say how irresponsible and and damaging mm-hmm. um, the, the the kind of journalism they practice is. It sort of reminds me of the analog version of the Russian troll farms that were pumping out the sort of fake news tidbits that were then circulated on social media during the 2016 campaign, right? This is the sort of supermarket tabloid version of the, some of that. I, I think that's right, and and I can't um, connect all the dots, but I would not be surprised if there was a feedback loop between what went on on social media that got into the Inquirer, which fed what was on social media. I mean, the 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 troll farms had to had to work from something, and I wouldn't be surprised if they used uh, stuff in the Inquirer, and then the Inquirer. Uh, would amplify what was on social media. Anything that they could do to help Trump and damage his rivals, they did. Fascinating. We are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk more about the Inquirer's current legal woes involving Dave Pecker, the Southern District of New York, the world's richest man, and of course, President Trump. Stay with us.
All right. We are back with Jeffrey Tubin. Jeff, you are a legal eagle. Uh, the National Enquirer got in trouble for a practice um, last year called Catch and Kill, which your colleague Ronan Farrow wrote about last year in The New Yorker. What it, For people who are not familiar with Catch and Kill, what is it and how did the Enquirer practice it and how has it landed the paper in hot water with the feds? Well, well the, the crucial fact you have to understand about the Enquirer's journalism is that it's based on financial transactions. They pay for news. They pay people for interviews. They pay people for photographs. They pay people uh, for tips, uh, which respectable news organizations don't do. Um, The corollary to simply paying people for interviews is paying people for a story that someone could do, but you pay them not to talk about it to anyone else. And what happened with Karen McDougal was they paid her $150,000 not to talk about her affair that she said she had with Donald Trump. The colloquial term for uh, what went on there is catch and kill. That is, you catch the subject of a story, but instead of publishing the story, you kill the story. And that's when all, what went on with McDougal. There's an anecdote you have in the piece about Tiger Woods and the Inquirer that sheds more light on the practice. Can you tell us that story just because it's such a fascinating insight into the way this paper works? Well, and, and, and you know, the Tiger Woods story is an example of how complex it can get. Um, the, the the inquirer was doing um, investigation of Tiger Woods, and they saw that he was having this sort of seedy affair with uh, some woman in Florida, and the, the, it involved sex and cars. And there were photographs, and it was very incriminating. Well, they confronted Woods or his representatives, and instead of um, running it, they negotiated for Woods to appear on the cover of Men's Fitness magazine. Men's Fitness, a magazine he had not yet appeared on the cover of. So this was kind right. of a big and deal. They really for wanted they, they really wanted Tiger on the cover. So in payment and essentially for not running the photographs of him with this woman in Florida, he agreed to appear on the cover. That's a good example of sort of how these transactions can work. It's not always as simple as Here's five hundred dollars. Tell us, you know, where you saw John Travolta. It's, it's, you know, it, it, it can be a much more complex web of transactions as it was in this Tiger Woods story. And indeed, as the the contours of the Bezos scandal seem to be a more complicated than your usual catch and kill. But because of the Karen McDougal catch and kill arrangement, the Feds have basically. Uh, crafted a, pl- a deal with AMI and Dave Pecker because they were the Inquirer was effectively violating campaign finance laws. They were giving well, right absolutely. Although it's so interesting, you know how different this looks two years hence. You know when I was sitting in a restaurant interviewing David Pecker, and he said to me, "Donald Trump is a friend of this magazine. We didn't want that story out there, so we paid to kill it." I mean, he was very open about it. What generous friends. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we we should all have such friends, although we probably shouldn't engage in the underlying behavior. But um, he, um, I mean, he very openly said it. 
it didn't occur to me, and it certainly didn't occur to him or the people who were at the lunch, that that would be later seen as potentially an illegal campaign contribution. Um, that money that was paid to um, engineering that transaction was one of the things that Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to right. um, as, as an illegal co campaign contribution. Um, that led to, uh, and, and that led to the investigation in the Southern District of New York. As part of that investigation, uh, D David Pecker um, and his top deputy, uh, Dylan Howard, effectively got immunity and a non-prosecution agreement saying, we're not going to prosecute you in connection with uh, this, the, the, the payments to Karen McDougal, but you got to keep your nose clean. You can't commit any more crimes. And that's sort of where things stood until the Bezos story. Until Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man, the CEO of Amazon, the owner of the Washington Post, publishes a week ago a Medium post where he details what he basically alleges is an extortion scheme by the National Enquirer, wherein they say, look, we know you're having an affair with this woman and we have photos you sent her, dick pics, I can say that on this family podcast, dick pics, that we're going to publish unless you say that our investigation into your private life had nothing to do with politics. Well, let me let me just amend the, your your version of the facts a little bit. First, the Enquirer sort of broke the story of their relationship, uh, of of Bezos' relationship with this with this woman, and Bezos announced that, that that he was getting divorced. Then they approached him with the dick pics and the other you know embarrassing photographs and said. You know, unless you either drop your investigation or say that our investigation of you, the you Pezos, and and unless you say in the Washington Post, uh, either drop the Washington Post investigation or say our motives were not political, um, we will we will publish these photos. The reason I make that correction is that. When they approached Bezos with what he calls a blackmail offer. The, the news of his relationship with Ms. Sanchez was already public. So the, the impact of the photographs was probably not going to be as big. I mean, obviously, it'd be very embarrassing, but the underlying news was out there already. So the leverage that the Inquirer had was somewhat less. Yes, although I will say... Who really wants dick pics circulating on the internet? I, I, I would say <laughs> no one wants that. No, absolutely, precisely no one. On but yes. but so so let's talk a little bit about this political angle. Jeff Bezos is effectively asserting that the National Enquirer is doing someone's bidding by revealing the Bezos affair and subsequently the Bezos dick pics. And the implication is that it's President Trump's bidding, right? President Trump doesn't like the Washington Post. He's been very public about his feelings about Jeff Bezos. He now calls him Jeff Bozo. What do you think about that angle? Well, I, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting and it's probably somewhat more complicated than the simple the inquirer doing Trump's bidding. Um, yes, it's true in 2017 that that David Pecker was very happy to say to me, 
look, we love Donald Trump and, you know, we were helping him out with this Karen McDougal situation. This has been a nightmare for for Pecker and for uh, American media, his company, and, and for Dylan Howard. The, yes, it's true that in 2017 and 2018, um, it was, uh, you know, it was all jolly to talk about how how much they liked Donald Trump. This has been a problem. And frankly, my sense is, and also if you just look at the inquiry, as I continue to do, they have carried a lot less water for Trump in recent months. Mm. Uh, they, they, you know, Trump is not selling the way he once did, as far as I can tell. And, you know, and I, and I think the relationship between them uh, Pecker and Trump uh, is somewhat uh, is is less close, probably a lot less close uh, than it once was. So I think you need to keep that in the background. Um, you know, obvious and and look, and Bezos is a good story. He's the richest man in the world. It is a classic Inquirer story to reveal that you know he he was having this affair. Is it a benefit that it helped Trump and and embarrassed one of his enemies? Probably yes. But was that the primary uh, motivator? I don't know. Now, I'm sure you're going to get to this. There is also the related Saudi Arabia angle, which may actually be bigger than the Trump angle. Let's just pause on the Saudis first, because I do want to get to that. Um, You say that this has been a nightmare for Dave Pecker. We were just talking about the non-prosecution agreement that AMI and Dave Pecker have with the federal prosecutors in the Southern District. Do you think that this allegation on the part of Jeff Bezos, that this was an extortion scheme on the part of AMI and Pecker, violates the non-prosecution agreement? I mean, how much jeopardy are they in right now? I'm going to give you a ringing I don't know to that answer (laughs) because I don't know. But it is certainly worthy of investigation. You know, um, you work in TV, I work in TV. Everybody asks you, you know, is someone guilty or not guilty based on like one piece of information? That's not how it works. What is appropriate here is that the Southern District do an investigation of whether this was blackmail. Look at all the communications between AMI and, and Bezos. Look, interview these people, talk to people, learn all the facts, because on its face, it does look like it might be extortion or blackmail. Um, you know, the extortion is obtaining a thing of value by threats or force. You know, give me a million dollars or I'll kill you. The question is, did Trump, did, did uh, AMI obtain a thing of value. Certainly there were threats. I mean, the photos are, you know, we'll release the photos is clearly a threat, but did they get a thing of value? Well, they got, or they sought um, the, the news coverage or the absence of news coverage. That's certainly a thing of value, especially to a, a company in perilous financial shape like the, like AMI is. So you could say they did get a thing of value. However, they would say, look, we were just trying to get the truth published in the Washington Post, and we were using what leverage we could to do it. So it is an unconventional extortion or blackmail case, but it might still be a case and I, I, I think it is worthy of investigation. And I can't say right here and now whether I think AMI is guilty of it. Um, you mentioned the financial straits that the National Enquirer AMI is in. I think that bears mentioning in exploration because there's a, another angle to this entire Bezos, La Faire Bezos, we shall call it. Um, 
that involves a Saudi Arabian government. Right. If you, you know, can believe it. The story it. isn't bizarre enough. So yeah. let's just just for people for people who haven't been following the 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 highs and lows of the National Enquirer, basically sales are down 90 percent from their peak in 1970. And Bloomberg reported this week that the publisher of the Enquirer has been sta- facing financial losses of more than one billion dollars in debt and a negative net worth. Now, Dave Pecker has in the past been a very resourceful manager. He reorganized uh, the company in 2010 under bankruptcy laws. There have been various owners, but Pecker has always been the chief executive. It sounds like he may have been going overseas for financial assistance or the hope of financial assistance in recent months. Is that accurate to say, Jeff? Uh, well, well, first of all, you know, the financial straits are obvious. Um, the Inquirer is even more vulnerable than, you know, most magazines and newspapers to the internet because they have essentially no internet presence, virtually no advertising. Everything they get, all their revenue pretty much, is from uh, newsstand sales. And, you know, you don't have to be a big media expert to know that, you know, magazines are not selling the way they once did. And the Inquirer has, as you point out, the circulation is down 90%. He has engaged in remarkable financial engineering over the past couple of decades to keep the place afloat. But um, he, he is very much on the lookout for new financing. And it does appear he was looking to Saudi Arabia for um, for money. You know, he was entertained at the White House, a dinner with um, with the president, you know, after the inauguration. And one of the people he brought with him was a potential Saudi finance financier. Um, I, I mentioned custom publishing earlier. Yeah. They did this very weird, untypical uh, AMI production of a uh, magazine devoted to uh, MBS, the the prince who was effectively running Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin the Salman. United, yeah, right. When he visited the United States last year, um, certainly looked like a cultivation of so- Saudi contacts. Um, what is the big story about Saudi Arabia now? It is about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist. Uh, who was killed in Turkey and whose murder has been a subject of understandable obsession on the part of the Washington Post. Saudi Arabia is very mad at the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos. And that uh, may be part of the motivation for what went on with Bezos and the National Enquirer. So you have two people that don't like Jeff Bezos, President Trump and Saudi Arabia, for different reasons. President Trump and Saudi Arabia publicly have remained weirdly aligned even through the Khashoggi murder to the consternation of even other members of the president's party. Republicans in Congress are not happy with the way the White House has handled the Khashoggi murder. But you have alliance there, right? And then you have Bezos effectively having his life turned upside down to some degree by the National Enquirer, which has relationships with both Donald Trump and the Saudi Arabian government. So how do we put the pieces together here, Jeff, as we stand this second week of February Anno Domini? Well, this is why um, prosecutors and FBI agents um, have subpoena power in the in the in the ability to go out and interview people. Um, this is highly, highly suspicious that uh, the inquirer went after 
um, in a potentially illegal way, an enemy of both Donald Trump and the Saudi government. Um, Bezos, unlike so many of the Inquirer's subjects, decided to stand up to them and embarrass them. Um, whether that will lead to uh, a criminal prosecution, I, I don't know at this point. But you know, this whole bizarre episode is, I think, a fascinating illustration of how this corner of the news media works, um, which you know had. had is, is it's it's not a pretty picture, <laughs> but it is it is um, revealing about uh, the transactional nature of tabloid coverage. Let me ask you just two more big picture questions here. The first is Bob Bauer, who is a former White House counsel to President Obama, wrote in The Atlantic that he does not believe the Inquirer is subject to journalistic protections. He basically says um, they passed over from the pursuit of news to corporate bullying for self-interested purposes or in the campaign finance catch-and-kill case, coordinated political activity with a candidate. And therefore, he suggests they, they forfeited the constitutional protections that normally work in a paper's favor. Do you agree with that? Is, is the National Enquirer part of the press? Well, I would I would uh, agree partially. Um, I, I think when it comes to outright payments of money, like payments to uh, Karen McDougal, there is nothing First Amendment protected about that. I, I agree with Bob Bauer in the sense that that could be seen as an illegal campaign contribution. You know, writing a favorable story about Donald Trump is protected by the First Amendment. You know, writing critically about Hillary Clinton is protected by the First Amendment, but paying money to uh, one of Donald Trump's uh, alleged mistresses is not. Um, when it comes to these photographs, you know, there is nothing First Amendment protected, I think, about extortion or blackmail, but what they put in the magazine is First Amendment protected. So I, I would, I, I would say, you know, I agree about the sort of non non journalistic activities are not protected by the First Amendment, but it is still a magazine, and it is in in and in, in, in what it prints and sells, I do think still is protected by the First Amendment. And knowing what you know about the the sort of the full <laughs> the full picture that you have of the Inquirer, the man in charge of it, the way its business dealings are done, the more nefarious aspects of its <laughs> journalistic <laughs> practices. Do you think the National Enquirer will exist in five years? Yeah, you know, that, that, that's, a great, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think the National Enquirer has a better chance of surviving than the Hartford Current or the Cincinnati Enquirer. You know, I, I think there will always be a market for, you know, down and dirty gossip in this country. And, uh, I, you know, Pecker has managed to uh, keep it afloat through the rise of the Internet. Uh, so I do think uh, the much diminished National Enquirer will be around, uh, but you know, and and even in a shadow of its former self, which it is, we can see how much trouble it can stir up. Whether it's in the 2016 <laughs> election or with Bezos now, it's as long as it's around, it's going to be making 
uh, making trouble because it operates by such different rules uh, than the rest of us do. So, yeah, I do think it will be around in five years. There's always a market for tawdry and salacious gossip. Jeffrey Tubin, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for telling us the story of a strange, strange place. <laughs> and thanks for your time. Thanks, Alex. That'll do it for this week of Radio Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode, to our podcast fellow, Patricia Jacob, and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is the Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by John Batiste. You can find show notes and past episodes at theatlantic.com slash radio. If you like the show, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Thanks for listening. <laughs>